So it's fine. Nobody notices you not really closely communicating to your stakeholders. But at one point in time, they will draw their own conclusions out of this, of what you're doing without you impacting this strongly enough. And then it's too late because then they say, well, what are they doing over there? This is just, this is not right. Welcome to Create New Futures. Thought-provoking conversations with leaders, experts, and interesting minds. Join us as we explore ideas and reflect on practices that you can use and apply to create and shape the future. With your host, author and strategy consultant, Aviv Shahar. Welcome to Create New Futures, where we develop conversations with successful leaders to explore how you can create new futures for you and for your organization. This is Aviv, and today... I'm speaking with Astrid Hartman. Astrid is the Senior Vice President and Managing Director of Lufthansa Global Business Services, a 2,000 employees organization managing the finance, HR, revenue accounting, and procurement globally for all of Lufthansa Group companies. When I first met with Astrid's leadership team in 2013, she was the only employee for the organization and was in the process of onboarding her team to quickly launch this new Lufthansa subsidiary. Astrid grew revenue by 100% to 200 million euro, delivered more than 100 million euro in savings to Lufthansa, infused performance and improvement culture, and dramatically improved customer satisfaction. She was acknowledged by various industry awards for her work. Before she joined Lufthansa, Astrid was the Vice President of Global Business Services at Hewlett-Packard, where she led a series of large transformations in an organization of 20,000 people across 10 global centers, handling all of Hewlett-Packard back office processes. She delivered four-year objectives in just three years and produced more than $200 million in direct savings. I first met Astrid when she was at HP, and then when she came to Lufthansa. I found Astrid to be a dynamic and tenacious leader. She brings a nothing-is-impossible mindset to issues large and small. Astrid is a smart and curious executive. She creates infectious energy with rare ability to mobilize a large-scale change and ignite the fire in her teams to exceed their objectives. Astrid, after this long introduction, it's great to have you here. Welcome. It's an honor. Thank you, Avi. So uh, we are conducting this conversation mid-January, uh, beginning of the year, and you just got back from the end of uh, the year family vacation. And I- I'm going to ask you about this because large percentage or chunk of the people listening to these are in the U.S. And I always feel that in Europe, people understand a little better than in the U.S. the value of a true end of uh, the year break. So where did you spend your vacation and how is your ski uh, going? <laughs> yes, actually, we, we enjoyed uh, three weeks of vacation at this end of the year. And we spent Christmas and New Year with family and friends. 
And then because of the school schedule, we had one week of skiing vacation and we went to the Austrian Alps, where this year there was, from the news, you might call it a cat catastrophe with uh, humongous amounts of snow. I have never seen so much snow in my life. It snowed every day and every night, meters on meters of snow. And we had so much fun. It was very different skiing because of all the new snow we had, but we had a lot of fun and the kids enjoyed it and it was very remarkable. Thank you. How is your ski improving? Are you still in the process of improving your mastery in ski? This is actually something that I, that I noticed with skiing. If you don't learn it as a kid, you'll never be really good at it. And I kind of, this, this, and I didn't learn it as a kid. And I kind of noticed this year that, that I don't see as much improvements anymore. Um, but the skiing teachers were so completely booked up that I couldn't utilize them. But this learning kind of made us to enable our children who are six and eight years old to start to learn ski very early. So my older daughter, was still in diapers with three years when she started skiing. And this is what I, what I want to, what I want to enable them that they can ski and later on decide if they want to continue skiing or not. Isn't that such a beautiful commentary about the formative experience, experiences of, of early age, just about any other uh, dynamic in life, even for example, interacting with strangers and, and having confidence in traveling to new places when toddlers are exposed to those experiences earlier on, they are much more naturalized to them later. And as we are a bit older parents, we are very conscious, maybe sometimes overly conscious about those kind of decisions we're taking with the kids. But this one was fun. Yeah, great. Well, so obviously I want to talk uh, with you about your upbringing in East Berlin and about how you started your career. But let me first go to, to this current time and ask you, what do you enjoy most about your job as the head of uh, Lufthansa Global Shared Services? I, I've been thinking about that as well. And the, the, the one set that I really enjoy is that I'm responsible for a whole legal entity. So I'm not just responsible for one piece of an organization, but for a legal entity, which brings a, a whole new set of challenges with it. And, and, and with that responsibility, I have so much opportunity to create, shape, and impact the organization and, and, and our results and how we're working with our internal customers. So this really feels great. I have a lot of responsibilities, but I also have a lot of room to decide. We can try out new things, we can experiment, and 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 in that field, that, that I really enjoy. And I also now enjoy that that I see in the organization how I have left my mark. So I see people mentioning certain things, utilizing certain methodologies or, or their understanding of how we want to move forward that I can tell, ah, that comes from me. So that, that I enjoy as well. Very nice. And ultimately, you are answerable to the board of directors. They 
have visibility to the the results that uh, you are delivering correct of course of course i report into the group cfo and we have the end as well into the group hr uh, board member and they have more insights into my work but by the nature of the beast them being in the board they do not have much time to daily micromanage what we're doing. They're interested in results and they're interested in, 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 in are we making progress? So that's sure. the cool thing about the, the setup at Lufthansa. So you came into this role that really did not exist before and an organization that you needed to build from the ground up, all simply based on a business case that promised great outcomes. What was the nature of the challenge when you looked at it at the beginning and how did you approach such a big opportunity and challenge? First of all, I love starting new things. I'm a startup kind of person. I love the energy that comes with it. You see, I need to do all this. And wherever you start, you're making very quick and measurable progress. I just love that. So for me, it wasn't really, um, I, I didn't think of it as a challenge. If you step back, building global business services, shared services is always controversial for the parties that are affected. So I, I stepped into a situation where my boss, the CFO, said, convince the employees, convince the internal management team of what we're doing is the right thing. So we had a, a thousands of employees, thousands of employees that were impacted and that hated the idea for various reasons. And we had customers from internal users up to uh, upper management who said, this is never going to work. And then we had Astrid Hartman coming in and saying, I know this can work. Let's get started. So that was kind of the, the, the setting when I, when I came in here. And my sense was the sooner we can create, the sooner we can get started creating the organization, moving the work, doing the work, we can actually prove that it works. So my point was really get fast first first proof points that we're doing the right things, get first wins under our belt for both employees and customers alike and management to see, yes, this is we're walking in the right direction. This is this is overall a good idea. And 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 that's what we did. As you mentioned, I had the privilege to come into a situation where I could hire my own team. Right. That was cool because could select the people who I thought were were the most fitted, the best people in the organization to work with me on that. And and that was that was great. What what we did and by that time, as you mentioned, you you offered your 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 help in that we or oh, I spent a lot of time investing into this leadership team because I knew this will not be easy and we will, we will need to be all aligned 
then we need to have a strong team that pushes the endeavor forward. So we invested quite a number of sessions to align our, I say, vision for, so the target. Where is it where we wanted to go? And I remember by that time, I was surprised how closely aligned we were in the target picture that we were looking at for the organization. And and, and from, from there on, you could trust everyone in the team to tell the same story of where we wanted to go. Right. And this is then where we... So what are, what are the wins we need to get? What are the first steps that are making the biggest impact? What are the things we can impact ourselves to start get going on this? Yes. So to capture two of those guiding principles, momentum, velocity for you was not a tactic. It was a strategy. Getting quick wins, yeah. getting uh, the first results is a core strategy when you set up something like this. That's number one. And number two, investing in a major way in your leadership team so that they bring not just the best to the endeavor, but that they engage in the entire exercise of setting up a whole new organization through the lens of a learning and development experience and bring forward not just what they know to do best, but what they are learning and developing along the journey. Agreed. And we could, we could cover much more bases with the leadership team that was aligned. So we divided and conquered. I didn't need to join each one of my leaders when they talked to an um, executive stakeholder or when they, when they talked to their employees. So we, out of a sudden, we were a lot more to kind of bring the endeavor forward fast. So what then are some of the additional learnings that appeared for you on, on the journey? For example, <laughs> I remember often discussing with you the areas where you said this can wait for later and other areas where you said, no, this is something we need to uh, do right now. And, and people wanted from you sometime definition and you deliberately decided, no, I can afford to leave this space a little ambiguous and, and let the ambiguity rule for a while because ambiguity bring up, brings up in people innovation and, and creativity. But share with me some of the key learning, uh, learnings for, for you from that journey. I, I, I remember exactly that. And I, I still think this one was right to say, we cannot afford to very detailed do racing models and to explain people what they need to do, where what is what, what we really needed was people managing the white space, the space that is not written down. And this is why I didn't want to spend the time to really detail that. Now, where, where we are more stable, there is a time for doing that. When I, when I look back, the one thing where I exactly like you did said, well, this can wait for later and I don't need to deal with this now or not to that extent where I say today I should have is more change management and communication to the larger body of employees and customers. I, by that time, said we don't need two people, maybe one is enough and we don't need consultants. The whole thing manages itself. We I didn't think it was very important because we were moving so fast forward and we were creating facts, we were showing quick wins, etc. 
looking back, I do think it it would have made it easier to tell our story for the employees to understand and to see earlier where is it we were going and how are we shaping the organization and what targets we had, etc. So that's something that that I would do differently had I would I have to build up such a large organization again, more change management and communication not just to the direct team, but to the larger organization. Indeed. Learning Indeed. from you. Never stop learning. Indeed. Communication, communication, communication. I, I do want to just capture the, the earlier thing you said there, which is an important nuance and may be important for many leaders. If I understand correctly, your philosophy essentially says this. We are leading... A, a, a large scale change and we cannot def- be too definitive in people's roles and job descriptions and, and interlocking agreements because actually we need people to lean into the white space, the undefined, the ambiguous. And so therefore, part of the resistance to offer too prescriptive definition and answer to every question that people came to you with in the early stages was is that you needed them to develop the muscles and, and to build the culture and the DNA of leaning into the ambiguous and, and working cross functions and cross silos to indeed develop the solutions. Would you, how would you restate what I just said? And actually, this is, this is why I focus so much on target picture and goals, because if everybody understands where we wanted to go to, then that should be for everybody the task. If I look today, what is very in vogue to look at lean project and not lean, agile projects and agile organizations, this is exactly how they work. They have people with different skills in the project, but essentially the team is responsible to create the results. And if they're missing somebody, somebody else needs to step in within that team. And this is intuitively what, what I tried with my team to achieve. Right. So in other words, the, the belief behind this, the, the method behind this, if we are aligned on the outcome, on the future state, then we can connect about how will we organize, what is the work that will um, get us there. Whereas often people that operate in, a, in, in the more traditional, historic uh, mental model they want you to give them definition for exactly to the, the highest resolution details in terms of their job description and, and what they need to do and what some, is somebody else's responsibility. And, and your message is when you're leading through change, that is never going to be sufficient. The alignment must be at the highest level in terms of the outcome and the goals of what we're trying to achieve. Right, and I didn't want to have the conversation, well, look, I've done my job, it's the other idiots in quotes who didn't do their job. That's why we're not where we wanted to be. I wanted to focus the conversation on what is missing and how can we get this done together. And then, then you still need to talk who needs to do that, but not based on, well, written down, this is what I need to do and this is what you need to do. 
what else would you add to the philosophy that you bring then to the table about leading large complex change? Number one, we talked about already momentum, get quick wins first. And number two, you framed now a line on the future state and the outcomes and, and the goals. Is there a, a third or a fourth component you will add to this in terms of how do you approach a large scale change effort? You basically this is those are the things you start with and then right. and then you you more more tactically react to how how things are going. The one thing that I now also learned the hardware is stakeholder management right and um i this is this is also if i if I talk change management is something that in the in the heat of the moment. You're doing a lot of things, you're, you're removing resistance, you're creating stuff, you're moving things forward. It's easier to forget to do, and I call it marketing for better sense of the world, to go out there and tell your story. And I just recently had, a, had again, an, an experience like that where I call it now stakeholder management And, 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 and information is like brushing teeth. If you don't do it, you do not see immediately the effect. The effect comes delayed for not brushing your teeth. You get cavities. But when you do, when you do see the effect, it is too late. So it's fine that nobody notices you not really closely communicating to your stakeholders. But at one point in time, they will draw their own conclusions out of this, of what you're doing without you impacting this strongly enough. And then it's too late because then they say, well, what are they doing over there? This is just, this is not right. So this is probably the third component to really message what you're doing and be in that conversation, not just with your own organization, but with the organizations you're doing this for. Right. And I actually think that if there is a fourth pillar, it's the first one you mentioned, which is if you are in a position to choose your own people and to architect your own team in the best possible way to bring the best talent, then that's probably another important uh, foundational element for success. This is where absolutely where with talent, we had long conversations with the team because also my team needed to hire their team. There were a few organizations there, but essentially they also needed to do that. And because of the speed we were moving forward and people were like, ah, oh, if I just had those, if I just could fill those positions quicker, I had more people doing the work. They were inclined to do, to make compromises on the quality of the people they hired. And this was the conversation we had. Do not make compromises. Rather mm. don't, hire a position and, and then find a different uh, an intermediate setup than to compromise on the, on the kind of people, the quality of the people that you need for the job. And this yes. is people still closer to me in the team. <laughs> yeah, this is the reason. <laughs> Because it's so important to have the, have the right people doing the job. And it's so, it's so difficult if you have people, I mean, it, it sucks out so much energy If you don't, right? right, that we were very, very conscious about that. That's the wisdom of experience speaking, because if you hire the wrong person, you are, you're being slowed down twice 
because then the the process of uh, separating from that person and and hiring somebody else all that is is so much more painful and so and not getting the work in the meantime right so yeah yeah <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, great okay well so so let's trace now to the beginning of your journey uh, tell me a little bit about the earlier stage of your life what inspired you when you're growing up describe a little bit the scenery uh, from your earlier years so to, to give me a bit the picture so you, you mentioned that in the, in the in the setup I grew up in East Berlin so in, in, in Eastern Germany and we were just a normal normal family with uh, two kids and I Yeah, it was it was a good childhood it was it was really i i by that when i was younger you you don't notice any hardship because i really had a good childhood to that time um what i what, what, one thing that stands out i was super competitive and ambitious it it, it did not come from my parents they didn't put me up to this it just came from within I, I from the age of three, my parents tell me stories on how I wanted to be the first or the best. And I remember that too. It's just, it was very, I don't know if it's genetic. And compared to the level of ambition and competitiveness I have today, I mellowed down a lot. <laughs> so that is, I know. And sometimes it still struck me. I'm like, oh, um, that, that, that's not a, not a direct influence, but I really, when I think about that, I, I remember, I remember that, that urge, that drive to, to be the best. Yeah. And I have no idea where this came from. Yes. By my parents were very, very relaxing. They, they encouraged critical thinking and, and, and discussions and they very much encouraged self-reliance in the kids. How old were you when uh, Germany unified and, and how do you remember that experience that time? I was 17 when the, when the wall came down. So I was old enough to understand or to somehow grasp what was going on, what was happening And I was young enough to super duper take full advantage of this. Mm. So this is the single biggest change in my life. Because without, without the wall coming down and the reunification, I wouldn't be here. I wouldn't be, my life would have been completely different. So this is for me, I'm, 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 I'm humble to, to, I'm very grateful that this, happened and that I could, I could be, I could live through it. Yeah. Can yeah. you describe the, the night, the day and, and, and the few days after what's going on in your life? What are you thinking about and, and uh, what's going on around you? We had actually on the, it was, uh, what was it? Um, November 9th or so, the evening yep. of November 9th, we had a school party. And so I, I lived in a, in a boarding school, so I wasn't, I wasn't at home. And we had a school party, and, and there was a rumor running through that the wall is open. And we lived basically at the border. 
so very close in Berlin, so we could we could see where where Western where West Berlin was. And and there was a room in the world that opened and I said, Yeah, right. <laughs> There's no way this is going to happen. And then next morning it became clear that yes, somehow you could go to the West. And we actually because we were we were really good school kids, we went to school for the day and in the afternoon we went to the police department because everybody needed a visa to actually Uh, leave the country and go to the West. and But they would give everybody one. That was kind of the, the construct they had. And there was a huge line. So Eastern German people were used to stand in line and wait for stuff. They didn't know. Well, we were, we were lining up. And we actually got the visa. I still have that somewhere in my, in, in my documents. And on Saturday, the next day was uh, November 11th. So we didn't go on Friday. Other people went on Friday. We went on after school. We went to West Berlin. This was crazy. There, there was like a million people being on the bus, on the train, on the platform. You couldn't move. And finally, we, went, we, we managed to be at the Kudam. And of course, it was November. It was rainy it was kind of cold and i was a little bit disappointed because of course the sky looks the same way and you were like well what do you expect <laughs> and there was just we were people were celebrating on the street and we did as well and because now the the the, the wall was open we went back home in the evening right not right we right, so. by that time understanding what it is that just happened. So, that yeah. was just so, you, so you were born, uh, and all your earlier years, the wall was always a central character, an artifact in your life. The wall was always there. And have you ever left East Berlin to other countries uh, earlier in life? I went to, to um, the Ukraine, to, to, yes, to White Russia, And yep. the Ukraine, I think. So I'm not extensively, but yes, and to Czech Republic. So to a few other, but not in the West. And I do remember I, I had a hand-me-down t-shirt that had the Acropolis in Athens on it. And mm -hmm. I remember the sadness that I knew I would not be able to see it. Yeah. Because it was yeah. on the other side of the, of the curtain of the, the, yeah. Yeah. So is it fair and, to and that was that was so cool. It's like, oh my God, I can see Paris, I can see essence. <laughs> the, yeah. it, it was just amazing. And of course, then things happen. So for me, right age, the change I was anyway going to through finishing school, going to university was such a big change that all of a sudden you could go to a university outside Eastern Germany. Was not a was not a huge change. Yes, of course I choose that, and 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 I could really not without fear, but without without a lot less fear, go and 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 start my life. My yeah. parents were my age, that my 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 age now. For them, it was very difficult to yeah. kind of go overboard all your beliefs, everything you worked for. The currency is not worth nothing anymore. You might not have your job. The whole thing changed. What was true yesterday is not true today anymore. So that was really hard. 
would it be fair to say that for you, this occurrence at age 17, in many ways, it becomes the, the shaping metaphor of your life uh, because you, you then in later through, throughout your career, time and again, you come to a situation that somebody tell you, this is the wall, this, these are the perimeters of what is allowed to do. And you're essentially going about the business of breaking walls and making what <laughs> seems impossible possible. Maybe I, I didn't break the, that war myself, but just the, the knowing that, that something like that can happen, right? Yeah. Which nobody had foreseen. Yes. And that kind of makes your mind a little, a little bit more open. The one thing about people that I, that I, that I learned from that is when very quickly the whole change and the huge opportunity with the reunification was all about money and it cost too much and it kind of got people very demotivated on both sides of the wall, right? right. The Easterns are, hmm, this is not really going our way. The Westerners are saying war, you just want to, you just, you just cost us too much. And if I, if I, if I look back, people very quickly forgot the hardship they had before. And they, the, the new things, the new good things, they immediately took for granted. And, but what, what was then weighing on them was the bad things or, or things that didn't work that way, things that were more difficult in the new world for them. So when they, when they look back, they kind of only see the good things back in their life. They glorify their past. And when they look forward, they only see the negative things. So they, they, they see the worst, they see the things that get bad, and they forget about the good things that happened. Wow. So this That's is it. something that I, I use for change management because you have to, sometimes you need to question, really, was it that good in the past? And then to say, it's not going to be that bad in the future. Mm. So this is just a learning. To underpin that with the story, I remember my mother saying, when I can drink a glass of orange juice every day, because there were no oranges, there was no orange, wherever. When I can drink a glass of orange juice every day and, uh, and I have a can of pineapple a week, I'm going to be a happy person. And guess what? She was not. <laughs> and I remember I, I, I told her, I said, do you remember when you said that? It's just, you're right. All of a sudden, this was then not important anymore when you have it, right? You, you long for different things. That's a powerful observation about human nature. And also uh, beautiful how you have implemented and used this insight in leading change management efforts, being alerting people that it wasn't as good as they romanticize about the past. And the future is not going to be actually that Horrible, it, will, it may as well actually be a lot better than they imagine. So take me now then to the next stages of, as you graduate from university, how do you develop your professional career? How do you discover what you're good at? I actually, what, I, what, I, what I'm good at, I discovered before that, very mm. early on. So things that you remember there, Ambition, uh, ambition phase. <laughs> so basically, stuff that I in, enjoyed doing. So I discovered that I was good at organizing things. I was good at 
getting getting things done. I was good at leading from the front. Where I am, this is where the front is. And just in interaction with other people. And I discovered through work at Walla um, Walla's to student work that I'm a good tour guide. So I used to to moonlight as a tour guide in during my university time. And I could really tell the stories about the city we we lived in to the tourists and they loved it. So I know it was a talent, a bit of a show, show show them around and explain them and tell them more about the history. At what age do you remember yourself consciously aware or you even telling yourself, yeah, I'm good at getting things done. I'm good at leading. I'm good at being uh, in, in, in leading in the front. At what age did you say that to yourself? When, when we discussed that and when I was more conscious about this and then taking decisions was just when I was 16, 17, 18, because this is when the discussion was, what am I going to study? Right. And one of the things I considered was mathematics. Mm. Well, because it's very, it's very technical, very structured, so it's a nice thing. But then I, I, and then I described to people what I want to do. I want to get things done. I want to organize. I want to lead. I want to have responsibility. And people said, well, yeah, maybe mathematics is not the, maybe that's not actually what you, what you do to do what I, what I thought I was good at. And this is when the unification hub, because then I could, I, I, I was um, torn between studying the law or going to law school or studying business administration. And I, I actually, by coincidence, it was just business administration and not also going to law school, which at the end of the day was the right decision to take. And, and then this then enabled me to, to start a career in exec, to broaden the career option that I had. Right. How do you go from there to starting your corporate career and, and ultimately finding your way to, uh, to HP, to Hewlett-Packard? I actually, I, I, I need to say good, good luck. There's always in every career, I, I now see looking back, well, 20 years, there's always a portion of luck with that. I was invited to one of those career days where companies are interviewing um, people who just, who just had their, their graduation. And I didn't want to go because it was a day before one of my exams. And but a, but a friend told me, oh, no, you have an interview with HP. You absolutely have to go. Coolest company in the world. I'm like, okay. So I went there. And and I had an interview with my with my future boss, and we hit it off. And I thought, yeah, he's gonna he's telling everybody here they're they're good and he likes their profile, etc. But then they offered me they they offered me a job after a few interviews. They said, yeah, you could work at HP. And this was really I I hadn't applied for a job. It was my very first job interview, and I was like, okay. So is this it? Is it as easy as this? Do I need other jobs, interviews? Can I just, do I make a deal? And I remember two things. They offered me a salary, which I thought was far too little. I was like, oh my God, this is, I thought I would earn more in my first job, like probably many other people. 
uh, feel like. And then at the same time, after, after I finished my, my exams, one of the professors, one of the teachers at the university offered me a PhD grant. He says, oh, you've done so well in, in, my, in my class and in the exam, don't you, don't you want to do your PhD with me and go to a different city? And then I, was, I, I had already signed with HP. I had this offer, and uh, those were two hard weeks for me to kind of make up my mind. What am I going to do? Corporate career. I had an offer with HP to go to Brussels, so I had an offer to go abroad. How cool is that? Or become get a get a PhD, which every almost everyone in my class at school was aiming for a PhD. So and I was, hmm, should I do that? So that was that was I, re I remember that that time of indecisiveness and in trying to find the decision for that. Right, and what happened then? Um, I took advice from all the sites. I closed my eyes and I said, "I'm going to go to Brussels. This is the more adventurous thing to do." <laughs> and what is your first role, and how how are you quickly evolving through your career? Take me through that story. Yeah, I somehow ended up in in a shared service organization in an accounting organization. Oh my god! And I never I never really studied accounting. I thought this was for the boring people. And and then yet I am there in an, in an organization, and they asked me to do process engineering, and design processes, design tools, and make processes better. So that was that was absolutely thrilling. I, the first well, the first job I had is uh, documenting the process, which kind of gives you a better understanding of what's going on and and how this is going on, and so I I kind of got my feet wet after. My, my salary thinking, my, or my disappointment with my first salary, my thinking was, I'll stay there for two years, I get on my resume, I've been abroad, I come back and I'll become a consultant. And then I have a good life in Germany. This <laughs> <And laughs> is what you imagine for yourself right, in, in, in the start. And from the moment I said, foot into that organization for the next 15 years, I did not have a moment to think of leaving the company because I got more and more challenges within that organization. And it was such an exciting time for me to grow, become a manager, get the, get the, the opportunity to do things others haven't that, that I never made do on my plans to leave Brussels and become a consultant. Right. Good thing. Right. And one of the big things I imagine in that time was finding people that could act as mentors and create for you opportunities. The, so next to the luck that I went to that, so, so luck is never just luck, luck, right? There's always something that, that you do that my decision to apply to the conference, my decision to go there despite the their exam on the next day, my decision to take the job in Brussels and not a job in Germany. But the the portion of luck that I came across, my first boss, the one who interviewed me, who absolutely believed in me, and at the same time was the coolest boss in the world and was a super successful person. 
So he, with with him growing in in the organization and and him getting more responsibilities, I I had an ever growing opportunity to do stuff in that uni- universe. And this was this was absolutely luck. And now looking back, how other young talents need to shape their future, work on having a perfect resume, doing funky stuff. I didn't need to do that. I didn't need to, for the longest time, I didn't need to worry about that because I had somebody who had complete trust in me and who promoted me, if you want, in that organization. Are, are you talking about Jorgen Reiner? Jorgen Reiner, he was the one actually that interviewed you in the first place? Yeah. yeah. Wow. <laughs> wow. Yeah. That was, yeah, as I said, a combination of intuition and, and luck. Yeah. Which, which enabled me to do, to really concentrate on, on the work and not on portraying something you're not or switching jobs, etc. But he, and then don't get me wrong, it wasn't easy peasy. <laughs> he really challenged people in, 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 in doing their best, giving their best. It was absolutely a hard time, but at the same time, somebody who, who, who absolutely trusts you as well, it was just very rewarding. Yeah. Yeah, I, uh, the first time you and I ever met was in a session with him and his team in Berlin. And we did this exercise where I asked everybody to draw a, a picture on a flip chart and imagine a future state and, and describe uh, who you are as a leader. <laughs> and he drew a rocket and, uh, and, and he said, uh, we produce a lot of, we're going to produce a lot of noise. <laughs> so uh, I, I thought that, that very much <laughs> described who he was, yes? Yes, absolutely. It's a very good picture. <laughs> yeah. Well, so, so then you get new and greater responsibilities, and he is obviously promoting you. What, um, what are some formative insights about leading people, about leading teams that you are developing as you go up and up in, in responsibility. And increasingly you get to a point that you know that you get results through other people. And not only that, you get results through people that get results through other people. So leading leaders, what, what are some of the, the early important discoveries and insights for you as you uh, take these greater levels of responsibilities? The, the very first one to become a manager and to lead other people was that, and then I had a discussion with my boss, that whenever you delegate work, it will not necessarily be done the way you would have done it. And that's okay. Because mm. if you want it to be done the way you would have done it, you will never get anywhere. You only have your own person. You don't have a lever to kind of get your ideas executed, but you only just work on yourself. So my first biggest lesson was when you delegate, when you have a team, you need to become tolerant to other people doing it their way and not trying to tell them how to do it, micromanage them, etc. but to look for the result and even there to be more gracious. Right. 
and sometimes they will surprise you and produce something better than you even even imagined. I think this understanding comes later in your career when right. you when you are a little older and now I'm like oh my god I don't I don't want to do it myself I want people I I need people around me and we do it together right so it comes later in your in your career when you understand may hey, actually there are a lot of people out there who have a lot of better ideas and can can explain things better and can have can do things better than you do yourself Right. So so practice one lesson and insight one is learn to truly delegate not micromanage but rather trust people and empower them to do uh their work what what's the what's the next uh, big lesson that you develop as you well, well, the other one comes from my mom so this one was from my dad the other one comes from my mom and I'm still learning it is she used to say remember If you praise people, they love to do the things they do. If you criticize them, they will hate it. And I am more a critique kind of person, but I, and, and it's so easy to say, it's similar to this delegation. You can say, well, you know, hmm. Um, and then whenever, whenever I have the urge to do that, I need to think about how I feel when somebody criticizes me, which I really don't like. I know it's important, but in how I feel if somebody praises me. Yeah. So, and this is, this is a, a, a learning that I'm still growing on, I need to say, <laughs> to praise works better than critique. Let me ask you about another aspect that I've observed in, in your leadership, and I'm, I'm curious how uh, you've developed it, and, and perhaps even more importantly, how you encourage it in, in other people. It's this capacity... an aptitude to see a big picture to think through issues at the highest strategic level and at the same time to be prepared to go into the details of execution how do you develop that aptitude and how do you encourage it in other people i i don't actually this one i would need to say i don't know how you develop it just by by interest in It's, it's this combination of of seeing the final picture and knowing where you need to go and then kind of mapping mapping the next steps to get there and this right. is when and then when you kind of see oh the other one doesn't get it and then sometimes you launch into a more tactical detailed discussion are we on the same page what needs to be done next I'm listening to what you're describing and and it occurs to me that the answer is then is actually being passionate about getting results because when you want to get sustained results, you need to think both about strategy and about execution. Right. And being, sometimes being able to step back and see, okay, so what is actually the, the bigger picture we want to achieve here? Mm-hmm. Yes. You have also uh, grown in responsibility in, in time of uh, culture change in, in Europe and in, in the Western world altogether. Uh, in terms of the uh, opportunities for women, what has been and what is your experience as a strong woman in leadership in, in a large company? Do you feel that it is now as easy for a woman to be ambitious and to pursue her career goals or, or we're not quite there? I actually think, well, that, that's actually a topic for, uh, for its own podcast. <laughs> I am very passionate. Meanwhile, I'm very passionate about this topic. 
I think there are two aspects to this. If you if you talk women being strong, pursuing their career, one aspect, especially in Europe, is that women in leadership position are still in the minority. And if I say minority, I don't mean less than 50. I mean less than 30, less than 20%, the higher up you go. There is no single head of a DAX company that is a woman. Top 30 companies in Germany is not headed by a woman. This is so curious because obviously we've had Angela Merkel in her position for many years, but it, it's almost as though she had become the exception rather than inspired others to move into uh, positions of responsibility. And, and I don't think it's that women don't want to, right? So one, so let me, let me, so women in leadership in the minority. And if you are in the minority, whoever once was in the minority, it's very hard for the majority to see where you, you are easier seeing as being wrong. You do things different. You argue different. You solve issues different. You, You can be annoying to the majority because you are different. Right. And only once you get out of this minority status and you have, what, let's say 30% at least, then you are not wrong anymore, but you're just different. And I think this is one of the things that, that we're still not there. This is why I'm a huge fan of the female quota. We need to make sure that women in leadership I'm not in the minority because it's a self-sustaining system. People hire people who are like them. People hire people who they, who they can relate to. And, and women are still are, are, are different, and which is fine, which, which is good. People understand about diversity, but it's very hard to put this then into the reality of a leadership team. Well, they want enough women to select from, and you know what? The guy has a higher part that has a better experience. So bad. And the other aspect, you just gave me an interact with Angela Merkel, that is very important about women in leadership position is uh, biology. Women become mothers. And that is probably, at least in Germany, the biggest break point in their career. Up to then, also because they're younger, they're, they're, they're thrive to lead, and, and their success is pretty good. The moment they start to have a family, it's the whole guilting, at least in Europe and in, especially in Germany, and they start to work part-time, they worry about the family, and this then kind of disrupts Their, their leadership career, which again, is a, as I said, a self-sustaining system. It leads to having less women in women being a minority in the leadership area. Yeah, how did you get to address this, Astrid, that uh, you, you have led a high-intensity career and uh, you're raising a family and, and you stay, you've managed to stay sane in the process? How did you uh, address this challenge? <laughs> You, you would have to ask my family about this. <laughs> <laughs> so the, 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 the relationship I had with my first boss and mentor really helped me on the first part being a minority as a woman. 
this was I I never felt belittled or not being heard or my ideas being stolen. It's probably also for my more ambitious, robust um, character that uh, that wasn't a hindrance for me. But then again, you don't only need leaders like me. So with uh, with Astrid to the front, so I that wasn't an issue in the in the first years, and I was very successful growing, getting more responsibility, leading teams, learning as a shaping as a person, and 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 growing on that. And then I was in my mid to end thirties. When, when I, when I found the right spouse and I decided to found a family. And this is actually when you, and I got two kids within two years. And looking back, you can see it doing something to my career. So now I, I, I looked at uh, one or the other person who who used the last eight years differently than I did. And I was shocked. I'm like, oh my God, they're so much further than I am. And my husband goes, relax. <laughs> you have a family. You have a good life. You still have a good career. So what helped me was really that I, that, and I'm not recommending it necessarily for other women to do that, but I was already very advanced in my career. I was the vice president at HP. And I had more freedom to get organized and to to get back into my job and to continue my career. Yeah. And of course, I do have to say that my husband was absolutely willing to step in and to really do at least 50, if not more percent of keeping the family sane. Yeah. So without him, this wouldn't have worked. The yeah. model would not have worked. Yeah, well, that makes the whole difference in the world. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I, I always say to to women today, be conscious who you marry and who you have kids with. <laughs> this is what well, this is this, and be conscious of the boss you work for. If you work for a boss who doesn't respect your skills, who's not a huge fan of you, run. Look for a new boss, because it makes you cannot make up for this. Yeah, you cannot make up for this is what I what I what I experienced for having a boss who really values your work and who pushes you forward. Yes. And yes. You you can be as good as you want. If your boss doesn't really value that, you need to find a new you need to find a new job if you want to make a career. Two two or three uh quick last questions uh before we bring this to landing and, and the, this first one may actually be what you already spoke about now, but let me ask it anyway. With all that uh, you know today, what advice would, would you give your 20 or 22 or 25-year-old self from the place of experience you have today? Actually, I, I, am, I am somebody who thinks very hard about taking difficult decisions. I my my mantra is I do not ever want to look back and regret. So I this is what I make it hard for myself to take decisions. So there's not that much I would change in that aspect. Oh had I had I taken the job at the university. That's not it because I'm I'm done with that. The one thing that I that I would say is just very less. 
let the plants be plants. So with uh, with John Lennon, life is what happens when you're busy making other plants. Yeah. So I just relax more and just let let it unfold rather than worry about it. Yeah. If you were, Astrid, to lose all that you know and to keep only two ideas or two capabilities or two practices, what would you keep? Oh. <laughs> um, I, I really think it's the, it's the combination of, of, of understanding stuff. So the, the, analytical content understanding so with the, the 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 idea to learn and understand things quickly and the other thing to to interact with people and 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 learn with that interaction because that right. if, if you forget everything you just you need those two things to learn to learn it all again yeah so there the smartness of understanding the content and the 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 people interaction of of having those interaction with people because leading is all about working with people and then work working your way up in both directions beautiful the capacity to think for yourself and the capacity to interact and lead others to learn with both right? yes as we bring this to lending is there any other parting wisdom you would offer to people listening to create new futures? It, it was so much fun. <laughs> oh, no, I think I, uh, I had enough wisdom. I'm actually amazed that I'm now in the age to already look back at my life and share this with others. I really love doing that. I love helping women to, to progress and, and, and unfold their, their potential. That's awesome. Uh, I've interacted uh, with you a long time. I've always enjoyed it. One of the, uh, one of the best and, and most memorable elements for me of, of our multi-year interaction is that you always bring to the call something that is important for you. You drive the agenda and it always makes uh, things so rich and, and uh, so exciting. So thank you for uh, this rich exploration with you today. I need to say this likewise, Aviv. You always amaze me with your wisdom to whatever point I bring up. I have this issue. You go, yes, there are three things you can go about this. Or did you hear that? I absolutely amazing experience. Thank you very much. Thank you, Astrid. Here we are. We've landed this Create New Futures journey, and it's your time to take action, to create your new future. Here are a few steps you can take this week. First, as Astrid offered her big picture strategy to leading a large-scale change is first to get the best talent around the table. Second, develop a shared vision of the future. And third, create fast results and build momentum. Momentum is not merely tactical. It is strategic because it builds its own dynamic propulsion. Where do you have an opportunity to A, surround yourself with great talent, B, create a shared picture of the future, and C, 
create results that will build momentous movement. Second, who are your most important stakeholders? Astrid suggested that stakeholder management is like dental hygiene, like brushing your teeth. You discover later the negative consequences of not attending to it. Who are your most important and essential stakeholders that you need to proactively engage this week? Third, the formative experience for Astrid was when the Berlin Wall came down, and it shaped her outlook. What is your most essential formative experience? How did it shape your outlook? These are useful questions to reflect on. Certain formative experiences produce opportunities and others create limitations. But as adults, we have the capacity to choose what we give credence to and what we power and enact through our leadership. Astrid's early insight in life was that where I am is where the front is. This is true for you too, in your way. Where you are is where the front is, for you, and often for unique opportunities too. Identify your opportunity to lead. Discover what's hard for most that's easy for you. That's part of what you're here to do and how you're meant to impact the world. One more thing. You can reach me directly by phone and on email to explore how we can help you and your team create your new future. See you next time.